Uh, I'm Bill Alcoholic. Uh, I I probably came in here uh, into Alcoholics Anonymous for the wrong reason because I got scared because my drinking would come inconvenient. And what did that mean? Uh, well, the first thing I, I learned in, I, I, I caught and I learned and I never forgot was somebody self, was talking about self-medicating. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that was important. And I found out years later, that's what I was doing. I was controlled drinking for the first 20, 20 years of it. And then I was drinking like you guys. And that's when I got scared. I got out of my comfort zone. I started looking around for AA because I didn't know anything. But I never got caught for anything. Never been in jail. I'm, I'm one of those people. Um, so I found a lady that had an LA directory in her purse. And she led me to my first AA meeting, which was in Temple City, California. In Los Angeles. Uh, I stayed there for about two and a half years. And I, I got there early, like I people don't have self-esteem, do they always show up early? You know? So I was I was sitting there and I'm, I'm looking at the steps and the traditions, and I, and I almost walked up because of all the God that was written on both of those things. And I read them again to make sure that I actually counted it. Because that's what I do, I count stuff. So anyway. I talked myself into staying because I came there on my own power because I wanted to find out how to stop drinking. I, I hadn't talked to anybody yet. So I told myself, I'll talk to somebody, then I'll leave. So we got into the meeting and I got, got sort of busy and I introduced myself as a newcomer. And I also told them I didn't believe in God. And I think back about this, that the only reason I had anything against those people is that there was no plan B for the person that didn't believe in God. It was their way or whatever, you know, Whatever you're going to do, you can't do it in here. And so I stayed there, and for about two and a half years, I either I got sober in spite of them or because of them. I think it's because I stuck around for the meetings. And I found out that's where, where the magic works. And, you know, I tell people I don't know how it works, but that's how it does. You know, just talking back and forth to each other. And uh, I went to a lot of coffee, mostly Denny's, because they're open 24 hours a day. I don't think they even have locks or doors. So uh, there was probably about six or seven newcomers. They're all about the same type of sobriety. And we kind of hung out together. And, and it worked. Uh, some of us, uh, one of us went for a whole, whole year, and she decided she didn't want to be sober anymore. So uh, one of the guys in the program took her to the liquor store, and she, she bought her booze, and she went out. I, I kind of maintained a fellowship with her for a while, then, and I don't know, it's just, anyway, she went away. I hope she's still alive. You know, this stuff works. So, okay, now I'm going to meetings. And I was thinking out of the house to do it, and I told my wife when she caught me, she wanted to know where I was going at 7 o'clock at night. And I told her I was going to an AA meeting, and she didn't particularly impressed one way or the other with it, so I just kept on going. So it was okay for me to go out and hang around with strange people. Oh, they were very, very pushy about getting a higher power, getting a sponsor, getting a big book. You know, I didn't want to buy one of those because I already knew what was in it by looking at the steps. So I, I bought a big book. And the more I read the big book, the more I, I got confused about doing the steps. I needed somebody to help me. So I got what they refer to as a sponsor, but I got somebody to, to interpret what the hell I'm reading about it. And what does that mean on paper? And so I finally did that. It took me about a year to finally finish up my steps because I was really slow because I wasn't a very good student to start with. So that was one of my problems. So anyway, I did the steps. I did the uh, 
the fifth step in my sponsor's backyard, which is a guy I got that was 30 miles away from my home group. And I, I did that. And that was, that was 38 years ago, I think, something like that. I did that. So anyway, that was over with. So whenever they ask me, you know, how am I doing the steps? I tell them I did them, you know, and, and you know, I never did get a higher power. I never did take the third step as, the, as it's written on the walls. Because uh, I still don't have a higher power. I don't know, because I have too much ego or something. I just, I just don't know. So I look at my sobriety. It's got my fingerprints all over it. You know, so stuff I had, yeah, I had to do. So anyway, uh, we started growing up. At least I did. Uh, I started dealing with stuff I should have dealt with before. Uh, I had an extraordinary job when I was working for the Southern Pacific Railroad. And the job got too much of a job. It was a seniority-based industry. And you know, just being there, you just got the number kept going up. So you kept, you know, all of a sudden I was catching foreman jobs. Now I had a locomotive and three guys working with me. You know, and I'm on the main line. I don't know none of this kind of shit. So <laughs> I just, I got scared. So in, in my typical way of doing stuff, I just didn't pick up the phone anymore. I didn't tell them I didn't work there anymore. I just, I just stopped showing up. And so the union caught me and he said, well, if you're going to quit, you got to tell them. So I, I wrote him a letter and, I, and I, I did that. And about a year and a half later, I was trying to get the job back. And they wanted me to be a diesel mechanic. I didn't know anything about diesels until uh, we worked for them. So I turned that down, which is probably a bad idea. Anyway, so that was the first mistake I made when I was drinking. And it was just, it was stupid. Now as an adult, I'd love to have had the just opportunity just to have it, just to do it. You know, it would be a fun thing to do. But that's gone. Even the railroad itself is gone. And the place where it was is all gone. It seems like everything in my past sort of disappears. It's not like I don't go back and hang around the old company, you know, little people. They're just all gone. <laughs> and now I'm so old, uh, they literally have passed away. So it's one of the benefits of uh, stop drinking. You know, you don't die so quick. So anyway, uh, my wife wanted a divorce about six months into the, in the, in the my program. And I just, all I could you know, do is disagree with her. You know, she wanted it, she wanted it out. I'm not going to fight it. And so she was going to go away with this architectural engineer. And uh, they had it all figured out. She was going to marry this guy. So there's going to be no alimony. The kids are going to be out of the country for at least a minimum five years, which means that they'll be almost 18 when they come back. So there wouldn't be any, any child support. And um, this guy's uh, suggestion was, why don't you just quick deed the house over to me? And just basically, you know, the house is my responsibility. Well, that didn't work out because uh, by the end of the first year of my program, she didn't want to get a divorce. And the way I look at it, if that would have happened as they had planned, I'd still be stuck in East Los Angeles. And I, I, can't, I can't see that as any kind of a future. So it's just amazing the stuff that just worked in its way into my life. And we went down that road instead of the other one. So anyway. Uh, like like I was talking to you before, I, I was heavily into guns. I belonged to five different gun clubs. I was invited to shoot for the U.S. government into shooting in foreign countries. All kinds of crazy stuff I was involved with. And then I, I started going to rifle matches sober, and I couldn't drink it myself anymore. 
And then it dawned on me, those had to go. And I, I couldn't understand why. I, I was taking it at the meetings, like, oh, that's stupid. The guy next to me is trying to figure out where he's sleeping. I'm trying to, you know, uh, why do I want to get rid of a gun collection? It took me 30 years to build. That's not the place. So anyway, I gave myself permission. I got rid of the guns. Uh, we put that money into a second house after the divorce. It wasn't going to happen after all. So that's how we wound up with a mountain house in the mountains. So that's the first thing we did in, in, in sobriety. So that was great. I was, it was like, we're, both of us felt like we were now adults. We had some place to go on the weekends like other people did. So my kid, I couldn't keep out of jail. And he was a had about five years. They threw him out of school at 13 because he had marijuana. So he couldn't back, go back to school. So he got his GED in uh, the Orange County Jail. That's, that's finally what he, that's what he did. Uh, he got himself in trouble with the Southern Pacific Railroad. <clears throat> and the only reason I bring this up because it affected everything. Because we have two houses now. And he was 18 and nine months. So we weren't past 17 and nine months. Uh, he wasn't quite 18. And so uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad, they caught him. And what he did, he... he uh, he ruined the sight cages on the locomotive's fuel cells, which each one of those locomotives will hold 8,500 gallons of diesel fuel. So three of those things, you know, 27,000 gallons of diesel fuel laying in the dirt. And he got away with that one, but he went back the next day. And one of the diesels, one of the engines was sitting in a pool of this was oil. And so for some reason, he decided to set it on fire, and it did. And it got so bad, the LAP, uh, fire department couldn't put it out. They couldn't get close enough to it because they kept exploding and stuff. So anyway, they he ruined that locomotive. And I remember when I was working for that company, what those things cost is a million, $125,000 a piece. And, and that one's history. And so I went down there and I'm talking to the head of uh, uh, the, uh, the police department for the railroad for the LA division. You know, and I'm, he's asking me why I was doing there. And I told him because my kid just burnt this thing. So I'm taking pictures of it. I was so afraid that because of the railroad and the attitude that they were taking about it, that we're going to lose the house we were living in and the house that we just bought. And I'm thinking, this is a hell of a thing. You know, it's like the first year and a half of sobriety. This sucks. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, he did the magic thing. He said, I did it. And then they gave him three years and, and, uh, and three months. Uh, that's how much time he's supposed to be locked up somewhere. And so after three months, when he turned 18, they threw him out of the place. So we, you know, that changed everything. So we decided, I quit the family business. My wife quit the practice. She was out. Uh, we sold the house and we moved up to the house in the mountains. So we lived up there for the next 10 years. This one more road that we just happened to take in sobriety. And it was, it was marvelous. It's four seasons. My wife didn't know the sky was actually blue. She thought it was gray, you know, because she never got away. Anymore. Yeah, so, so now, now we are. Now she she worked in the dental field and and she got a job right away. Uh, there's twelve dentists up there, and she worked for eleven of them those ten years. Uh, seven of those years, I drove off the mountain, and I was seventy four miles each way to, to go back and forth to work. That's after I quit my best job I had in the mountains was making donuts, you know. I'm a trained machinist. I'm making donuts for crying out loud. It even, you know, I, 
uh, they didn't need to speak English to make donuts. So that's gone. Uh, I got a job. They hired me on the spot. They wanted me to quit the other the donut place, and I, I did that. And I worked there for about a year, and then the donut shop was offered to me if I wanted to take over the, the uh, whatever the hell that deal was they had. And we said no. So in about 10 years, we finally moved off the mountain, got down to the flatlands. I was 30 miles, 40 miles closer to work, 30 miles away from the actual job itself. And I worked that job for the next 26 years and 19 days. And it was an opportunity for me to practice my skill. Uh, they didn't pay for <laughs> They were terrible with their employees about paying them compensation. And well, I stayed because, uh, you know, I, I wasn't a supervisor or anything. I, I was just a card employee, but everybody came to me for stuff. We had 155 people in that place. And they're asked for this functional literate stuff. I thought that was amazing. But I was good at my trade. And then when I left, uh, they'll never, never replace me. In fact, most of the people that were there when I left has probably gone themselves because it's been nine years since I've been retired. So we got a house off the mountain because I was falling asleep on that, that trip going home. I was getting home at three o'clock in the morning. And yeah, jeepers. I had fallen asleep and I woke up and the car is still moving and I was in a turnout, which is a white spot in the road for taking pictures and stuff. And that happened two times. And I didn't know what to do about it because I was out of control. I never drank into a blackout. I never had one of those things. But to me, that's got to be what a blackout is. And that just terrified me. Just, that's a... So anyway, uh, we've been looking at houses and stuff, and this lady called. She was selling houses, and uh, we talked to her two years before that. She had seven houses left over out of 77 that she sold. So we went down there, and we bought the house that we lived in for the next 22 years in the city of San Bernardino. Uh, 22 years of living in that place. Anyway, it was it was such a good bargain. We, we got it for exactly what it cost them to build it. And to buy the property. They didn't make a penny on the damn thing. So now I'm working for this company, Alger Manufacturing. They're still a business. Uh, the recession was starting to show up. Uh, we were never underwater in our house. And I was thinking about getting, you know, putting more money in a 401k. So I started to collect Social Security, had all kinds of irons in the fire. And uh, you know, it, it got to the point that we were just pretty much grateful that we still had a job because we thought the company was going to close up. And it didn't. And I had people that worked, the staffers in the office, they're on the second operation of machines for me. <laughs> they didn't want to let them go. And they didn't have nothing to do, so they got their hands dirty. I was sad. But, I, I you know, I, I stuck to that job until I couldn't stand it anymore because of the, the financial thing. Uh, they didn't give us a raise of any kind for nine years in a row. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's like 27% less buying power. You know, for a, a person who doesn't have self-esteem, all you have is your job. That's, that's kind of like an insult. So two months before I quit, uh, they gave us 3% raise across the entire plant. And for me, that was $80, $80 a month before taxes. It's less than $1,000 a year. So I quit on New Year's Eve. Uh, that's the last day I worked. They gave me a retirement party and all that kind of stuff, which I didn't want to go to. But I thought about it. I thought, you know what? This 
I have an opportunity to give 155 people a half hour, 10 minute break. So that's the only reason I did that party. <laughs> and that's what they got. So, you know, didn't make me a hero. They never figured it out. But I got out of it just in time. I worked on a 71 and a half. You know, I got to this program when I was 40 and a half. <laughs> so all this stuff happens in sobriety. And I used to hear people when I first came to the program, you know, they, well, you know, I did surgery without pain meds. You know, I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? You know, and, and you know, I, I think back about it. Yeah, all this stuff, you know, with the, the scared thing about losing the house and everything and going back to ground zero again. All this, all this sobriety. And 2000, November the 5th, 2000, my wife had a heart attack that kills 90 out of 100 people. And she she died in the emergency room. That's the only reason she didn't die because she was in the emergency room. And they brought her back. That was 23 years ago. And that's the time when I, I forgot all about that. When I was living in the mountains, I stopped going to AA meetings. I, I took the one thing that was bothering me more than anything else I could think of was, was road rage. It didn't have a name. And I shared it at a meeting and it fell on deaf ears. And so I, I didn't figure it was going to be any way out of it by just sharing it, but I, I knew that that was the proper thing to do. I've been hanging on this thing for so, so long. It was eating me up on the inside. And I walked away. It was, it was one of the buildings at the airport that they couldn't find a real place to have meetings anymore. That's where I was that day. And I thought, well, I'll reverse engineer this thing because that's kind of what I do for a living. And I, I figured out what the triggers were. And I started practicing what I'm preaching to myself. And I got it pretty much under control. And then I moved up the mountain. And then I spent, the, like I said, the next 22 years uh, working in, in, uh, and, and living in, in San Bernardino. Uh, but uh, when I stopped going to meetings, I wasn't mad at the program. I just, I wasn't getting out of the fellowship what I thought I was supposed to get because of the God issue. It's the only thing I could think of. And so I, I, I just, one year after another went, and then, then uh, when I retired, I almost died myself when I got sepsis and pneumonia at the same time. I retired the same year, and uh, we decided to move. And so we moved to where we're at now is Las Vegas. That's, that's seven years ago. So I got very depressed. And I think I had a lot to do with the physical exertion of just moving and living in that house for 22 years and being a, a closet hoarders. We didn't know we were that. We had so much stuff I had to get rid of. So I wound up here and then I, you know, I, was, I, I learned in the program that you, know, you should get outside help if you need that kind of stuff. And so I was thinking, I'm not working anymore. I might as well go seek a psychiatrist. So I, I, I called the health group I was in and they set me up to move up meet with a gatekeeper, and I got past him, and I got a real psychiatrist. And so I talked to this guy for a while, maybe four or five months, and I never kept track of it. And uh, I got to my AA story, and I, I told it to this guy, and he stopped writing. And he says, how come you don't go back to the program? Well, I didn't go there to, to come back to the program. I come there to, to deal with the suicide thinking. And so I thought, yeah, why not? So I took a suggestion, and I did. And I went back to the same guy meeting I left all those years before that. But I didn't expect anything different. And they didn't smoke. And I thought that was really a good idea. Because I never did smoke. 
So I spent about the first year just sitting on my hands, just listening and learning. And they asked me if I wanted to share once in a while, and I got, kind of got slow in the sharing. And that's what I told them. So after the, the uh, going into the second year, uh, I started sharing a little bit. I was very cagey and careful about my sharing because they were pretty much you know, very religious. And I want to, you know, that's how they got sober. I'm not going to insult how they got sober. You know, that's not why anybody goes to meetings. And so I, I kept my, kind of toned down my stuff. And then this lady came in and she, she said that she went to a secular meeting. I didn't know what it was. And I asked her where it was. And I found the, the, uh, the, the geographical uh, address of it. And I, I went there and I went to my first secular meeting. I was 33 years sober at the time. And I didn't know how to share there either. because, <laughs> you know. So anyway, I hung around and I learned you know, what I could talk about. And we did talk about stuff. And I started counting sobriety on that. You know, We had a table in the, in the middle of the room and chairs that go around the perimeter of the room. 15 people sat at the table. I count 300 years of sobriety twice sitting around that table. There's a lot of people that had godly issues. And where were they when I was new? I just said, oh. So anyway. So now I don't have to go to the, you know, the God-based meetings anymore. And I go to regular meetings. A lot of my regular meetings, secular meetings. And then I was going to uh, a couple of years before this, the uh, coronavirus showed up. And that kind of knocked the wind out of a lot of stuff. And in the Valley, I think we have like 1,100 meetings a week scattered all over the place. There's like two and a half million people out here. So and they do have a drinking problem here. I don't know how anybody gets sober in Vegas because you can buy booze 24 hours a day. Any day of the week. There's, there's no limit on what you can buy or when you can buy it. If they got a slot machine, they probably got booze in the place somewhere. So here I am, this kid that doesn't know anybody, don't have any friends. Then because of the, the, the new meeting I was going to, uh, I was starting to meet people. Uh, the, the newcomer had five years. There was two of them. And so we looked, we looked at ourselves as like some kind of a dinosaur kind of meeting. Because you know, the average sobriety is, is 35 plus years. So anyway, I stopped going to those secular meetings for two reasons. One was a personality or principle kind of a thing with me at one of the meetings. And because of the car I have, it would cost me $8 in gasoline to go there at two dollars for the, the tradition so it's like ten dollars to be uncomfortable in the folding chairs so i just finally gave up on the folding chairs that was a deal breaker for me i, I suffer from bony butt syndrome and i can't stand folding chairs so I, I don't use them anymore so okay now what i've, I've been sober a long time uh, both of us my wife retired early because she had that heart attack and she wanted to collect social security for she couldn't well she's still alive she's 78 years old <laughs> you know and her father uh died when he was 96 because he broke his neck and nobody would fix it so he wished himself dead he'd probably still be alive if it wasn't for that so he's also living on m&m so that might be another way of committing suicide i don't know but i keep thinking back about my life you know, we've had everything that we ever needed. 
We never got all the stuff we wanted. You know, it's the same story people tell themselves when they get honest. You know, like I said, my, my wife uh, is still married to me, you know, and uh, my sobriety date's the same as a wedding anniversary because I can remember one of them or both of them now. And so in this, this coming January the 17th, it'll be my 40th year. It'll be my 59th year with her. You know, and I, I don't know what to tell people, you know, about sobriety. Just how Trent can go to meetings. And shit happens. Sometimes it's actually good. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's, that's about as, as I, I'd be surprised if everybody's still asleep. Now, I, I never talk about my drunk a lot because I was, I was a boring, boring drinker. I drank by myself. And, and uh, I had two drinking partners. At night, when I woke up, I never thought about the drink in the middle of the night. I'd be watching Cal Worthington doing his stuff. And in the daytime, because of my hours, I'd go home, and it was before the news, so I'd watch Sesame Street while I'm drinking beer in the garage. <laughs> that, was, that was my social event. I'm talking about a poor story. How much more? Yeah, yeah, it's a sad story when you think about it. About it. But I don't know. I, I've I've got the meetings, the neurodiversity meetings. I, I find those very enlightening. It explains to me why I do what I did when I was a kid and why I was using that self-medicating stuff in the first place. Because I didn't have any questions. I, I couldn't answer them. I just accepted it as, as that's the way it was. And after I quit thinking about it, the answer shows up. It's kind of strange how that works. I'm not a writer. I can't spell where the hell it means. So I don't take notes. Uh, that's the reason that's funny about the paper trail thing. I don't have a paper trail because I, I just never generated one. So I don't know what time it is, how long I've been talking. I don't know if that's enough time or not. But that's one person, how he got sober. And he's still sober. And I, I figure if any of those yachts are going to happen, it's going to have to happen pretty soon because uh, I celebrated my 80th birthday. And I thought about that. What have I accomplished in that? My 29,200 days, what did I do? I, I took my first breath. And I've, been, I've, you know, I've been doing that on a regular basis for a long time. I got married when I was 22. I got sober when I was 40. And now I'm, I'm going to be 80. I am 80. And I got I to have to get serious about life because a lot of people die in their 80s. And that's that's getting into the range of where my 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 parents died. So I don't think about death anymore. You know, I don't think it's a particularly good idea. But I also didn't. I never it never dawned on me to call suicide prevention or check back into Alcoholics Anonymous. I guess I guess it was going to work if I if I let myself do it. One of the things I did, I, I started going on panels through Ross Neal, which I don't know if it's a state run, it's awful big. It might be a state run uh, mental institution. And the people who, uh, who survived their, their suicide attempts, that's where they lock them up and they medicate them. And I don't know when they get out of that place. And I try to share when I go down there, but it's, you know, it's kind of a weird story I got. I hated drinking in bars. I didn't ever want to be 10 foot tall or handsome. I just wanted to be not me. And it worked fine. That scared me. And that's why I'm here. <laughs>